0: Well, good morning, Garden City. I bring you a special greeting from the men's retreat. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that don't know and don't seem to care at all, we did have a men's retreat this weekend, and actually it's still happening. A half hour east of here, we've got a group of guys that are finishing up breakfast, started on Friday, rolled all the way through Saturday into this morning. It was a fantastic time. It was so good. Actually, it was yesterday evening, the group of us that were there, we were remarking um, coming out of this weekend, what needs to happen next year is that all y'all men in the house need to come to the retreat next year, right? There's something, there's something sweet about gathering on Sunday morning and being together and singing and learning and serving in all the ways that we do. There's something really good about being in small groups, meeting weekly and rhythmically, but you can't duplicate time over a weekend or like an intense period where you're just together doing stuff, playing games, in sessions, having little small group times of just connecting. Like it was so good. And I I wish I could like hook up an ethernet between our brains and our hearts and just download some of it. I can't. But the only way for you to maybe get a sense for that is guys, next year you got to come. So next October, right, um, just... Put, put in your in your mental mind right now that uh, when we start announcing this next September, like just do whatever you can, clear the schedule, block off whatever you need to, and just come and hang out because it is so good. So, greetings from the men's retreat. We'll have a bunch of guys rolling in here to the 1040 and um, super fun. So, that's happening. Also, just want to remind us that uh, on the back wall... When you come into the foyer, we've got a bunch of clipboards on the wall. And what those are are all like the various small groups that we have. They meet throughout the week, different places, different times. Some of those, um, yeah, you can read information on the back wall. Love for you to sign up. If you do, we'll take a picture of that, send it to the leader, and then they'll send you any more information that we have. Also, we've got groups that meet here on Sunday. We've got a 50 and older group that meets every other week just on the other side of this wall. Lots of ways to connect outside of what we do here which we love but we want to get us connected so that's going on and is continuing okay so i'll give you a little taste of the retreat at the retreat um where the guys were hanging out the topic for the whole weekend was essentially this that god is our father and he fathers men into and along a masculine journey that progresses from boyhood all the way up to sage and there's various stations all in between. But the idea is God is our father and he's the one that wants to move us from boyhood all the way through the progression of manhood. But God is our father and we know that, right? That's how Jesus teaches us to pray, our father who art in heaven. Like that's how we're supposed to see him. But God is, um, he is father, and we'll call that like maybe a baseline foundation of relationship with him, but he is also more than father. Um, He's also savior. He is provider. He is so many things. But this morning, um, I want to lean into one specific thing that God is for us, that uh, if we're going to understand Hebrews chapter 11, we got to catch this. And if you want, you can turn in your Bibles right now to Hebrews chapter eleven, but what God is for us that we're going to narrow in and focus on this morning is that God is a multiplier of our meager strength we'll just say that God is our multiplier right I, I just I love the story where Jesus uh, is teaching and there's thousands, uh, they say 5,000 men, probably maybe another 7,000 people and women and children who were there. It's a vast array of thousands of people and everybody is hungry and uh, on the scene is this little young boy who's got five loaves and two fishes, enough for his lunch, maybe his dinner, but it's not enough. And everybody looks at that five loaves and two fishes and says, oh, that's insignificant. That's meager. There isn't much there. We can't do anything with this. We got to solve the hunger problem in some other way. But Jesus says, no, the five loaves and the two fishes are sufficient. And then what Jesus does is then he begins to multiply the five loaves and the two fish. And he makes what appears to be insufficient and insignificant. And he makes it significant and sufficient. For the task of feeding thousands, God loves to come alongside of us and to multiply us and what we perceive to be the meager, insignificant resources that we have. So, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to dig here in a second, but before we do, um, I want us to just lean into the idea of multiplication for a second, lest we miss the power of the, of multiplication. Okay. So, let's say this morning, um, what if I could make for you a very real and rugged offer? And, um, and uh, I'm going to offer you two different things and you just get to pick. And don't think about it too long. But offer number one is that right now um, I've got $1 million cash inside of this bag. High bills. It's in here. Trust me. Wink. Okay. Uh, and you can either take this million dollars and as the Steve Miller band says, go on take the money and run it's yours go for it or or i will offer you an option number 2 and option number 2 is one seemingly insignificant cent under the power of multiplication specifically this kind of multiplication Let's say that we take this cent, and you get it today, and I'll put it in your hand. But you have to forsake the million dollars to go this route, and I put the one penny in your hand. But then on day two, what we're going to do is multiply that penny by two, so that day two, you don't just have one penny, now you've got two pennies. And then on day three, we're going to take those two pennies and multiply that by two, so that on day three, we've got, how many we got? four pennies and we'll just keep doing that and that four on the next day turns into eight pennies and then on the next day that eight penny turns into 16 pennies and then the next day the 16 turns into 32 and then 64 cents the next day and then a a dollar 28 the next day and you get it but every single day we're going to double this we're going to multiply it by two we'll do that for 31 days just want to ask us the question you got to pick one are you going to take the $1 million cash now? Woo, that's significant. You heard it. Or are you going to take the one penny under the power of multiplication, doubling every day for 31 days? Which do you choose? Choose now. Here's what I think most of us would choose. We would choose the $1 million, and we would go ahead and get on, we'd get on out of here because we'd be afraid of our neighbor. They might try to take it from us. Because it's clearly significant, it's weighty, there's more here. It just obviously looks like the right choice to make. But um, for those of you that know the power of multiplication, you know that this would be the wrong choice. Because here's the deal. Let's just fast forward. I just did the first seven or eight days math in my head. And you could see how that was panning out. But by the time we would get to day number 30, this one cent doubled every single day, every day, every day. At day 30, you would have $5.35 million on your hand. And then on the 31st day, we're going to take that $5.3 million and and double it. So that one penny under the power of multiplication over 31 days would turn into $10.7 Million dollars. If you chose the one million dollars today because it woo, looked significant, it looked weightier, you made a tragic decision because you just missed out on, uh, we'll say, 9.7 million more dollars. Why? Because we didn't understand the principle of taking a seemingly insignificant little one cent nothing but utilizing the power of multiplication. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And this is what God longs to do in us and among us and through us. Check it out. Hebrews chapter 32. We're going to dig in to God, the multiplier of our strength. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of the book. The writer of Hebrews has uh, been in chapter 11 talking about the great exploits of faith in in the Old Testament about the people who have been filled with faith and who God has used in significant ways. Now we're getting towards the end of where the writer feels like all right, it's time to move on to chapter twelve, starting to think about wrapping up this faith chapter. And then here's what the writer says in verse thirty-two, right? Recognizing that there's more to share, but they don't have space on their parchment to put all of it down. So the writer says this in verse thirty-two, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of... And here's the list. You know the names. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, of Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now that is quite a list of who. Now... Starts with who in verse 32. Now, in verse 33, he's going to describe in shorthand a list of the exploits that these individuals, plus some others in the Old Testament, went through with the Lord. All right, we did the who, now here's what they did. Verse 33 who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Wow! These are some exploits. When you think about the things that the writer of Hebrews describes that these individuals did, the things they did are million-dollar level kinds of awe-inspiring things. Wow! It's quite a list of accomplishments. Now, here's what I know to be true of me, and here's what I suspect is true of you. When we perceive or know that an individual has performed million-dollar kinds of exploits, what we then assume is that they are million-dollar caliber individuals. That they're smart, they're strong, they're skilled, that there's just something more about them that allows them to accomplish more than what I'm able to accomplish. Like this list... If I were to hang out in a room filled with Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, my perception would be that those guys are hanging around the table as the weighty ones in the room. And if I were there, I would just be like looking for a place to hide because I uh, I just feel out of place. Right? I don't belong there. We We don't belong with these guys. Why? Well, because we know what they did. And if they did that, then clearly they are more than, better than, awesomer than us. After all, this Hebrews chapter 11 has been described to me over the years as a, it's almost like the Hall of Fame of Christians. You guys know in Canton there's the Hall of Fame of football players. Not everybody who plays football makes it into the Hall of Fame, only the best of the best of the best of the best. And we get this impression that, yeah, these, these are the best of the best. These are the highly skilled, competent, million-dollar kinds of people. But if we were to make that assumption, we would be missing everything that the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us. If we believe that because these individuals did million-dollar kinds of exploits, that they must be million-dollar caliber individuals, we are missing the whole point of what the writer is saying in Hebrews 11. Let me explain. Go back to verse 32, and let's just do a cursory run through the names that the writer provides for us regarding individuals who performed these amazing exploits and we start with Gideon Let's just dig into Gideon question is Gideon a million-dollar caliber individual Which then positioned him to do million-dollar level kinds of exploits? Well, let's go back to Judges chapter 6, right? Because that's where the writer of Hebrews wants us to go The writer of Hebrews doesn't have time to dig into all these guys, but there are stories in the Old Testament where we can do a little poking and prodding. And here's what we know of Gideon. Gideon uh, is visited by the angel of the Lord. And in a time when Israel, Gideon is an Israelite, They're being oppressed by the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the kites around them are just making life miserable for the Israelites, oppressing them, ravaging their crops, destroying their homes, just making life absolutely tragic. The angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and says, hey Gideon, it's it's go time, buddy. You are going to be the leader that's going to deliver my people from their oppression." Now be careful here, because our assumption is the angel of the Lord is very smart and very wise. And when the angel of the Lord selects certain individuals, the angel of the Lord knows who the million dollar people are. The angel of the Lord says, Gideon's my guy! He is smart, strong, competent, skilled. He's the one who I'm going to choose to deliver my people from their oppression. That's what we naturally, in our flesh, believe deep down to be true. But again, if that's what we believe, we are missing everything that the story here that God lays out for us is clearly communicating. Judges chapter 6 verse 15, angel of the Lord shows up, Gideon, you're my guy, you're going to deliver my people from the hand of Midian, I am sending you, verse 15. Here is Gideon's response, and Gideon said to him, please Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold. Now Gideon's going to start telling the truth according to his perspective. Behold, angel of the Lord. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Meaning my family is lame. We are weak. We are insignificant. We're not skilled. You want to pick a family? Don't pick my family. And regarding my weak, and insignificant family, I, Gideon, am the least in my father's house. So what Gideon says is, angel of the Lord, you must have made a mistake. You're asking me to do something that I cannot do. And then the, 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 the really funny thing about the Gideon story is like all of this is clear in the language of Gideon's response back and forth with the angel of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord meets Gideon, it's right here in the story in Judges, where the angel of the Lord meets Gideon and delivers to him this message, you're going to deliver my people, Gideon is doing his farm work as he is hiding and cowering away in a secret place where you normally don't do this kind of farm work. He's hiding from the enemy because he knows who he is. He's not the strong warrior. He's not the general. He's not the, check me out, guys, follow me. Let's go crush him. That's not who he is. And we see it all the way through the story of Gideon. Gideon's self-assessment of himself. He is a one-cent kind of guy. Be careful. Don't make the mistake of believing he's a million-dollar caliber person. But that's who the Lord loves to choose. Then the next name, after Gideon, Barak says the writer of Hebrews 11. We'll just turn to the left. Judges chapter 4. Let's read about Barak. Barak, clearly, maybe Gideon was an outlier. Okay, Gideon's a one insignificant scent that maybe there's an anomaly in the story. But Barak, he, he's in Hebrews 11. He's got to be a million-dollar caliber guy. Well, ah, let's dig in. Judges chapter 4, verse 8, right? God sends word to Barak, similar circumstances. Judges is like a cycle of similar patterns where the oppressors are just tyrannizing God's people. God raises up a leader to deliver them. And now Barak's going to be the guy here in chapter four. It's like 40 year cycles where the same thing keeps happening. But the Lord says to Barak, Barak, go. You're going to lead my army against the enemy and you're, and you're going to defeat them. And that comes from Deborah. Deborah is the leader, the judge, the ruler of Israel at this point, right? Barak, go. The Lord has selected you. Go lead my people and deliver us out of the hand of the oppressors, right? Here's, here's Barak's response. Question as I read this Does this sound like the response of a million dollar soldier? Just ask him the question. Here it is. Chapter 4, verse 8 of Judges. Barak says to her, to Deborah, Deborah, I make a deal with you here. If you. Female leader of Israel, if you will go with me, I will go do this thing. But if you will not go with me, Barak ain't going to battle. I'm out. Not going to do it. And then as the story continues, I love this. Deborah, love Deborah. Deborah says, all right, Barak, um, I will go with you. But here's how this is going to play out. God is one who loves to share his glory. He's not a glory hoarder. He loves to disperse it to people. And the Lord was inviting you into a journey with him where he would share his glory with you in this victory. But she says, Barak, because um, because this is your response and you won't go unless I go with you, the Lord is going to bring victory, but he's going to share his glory not with you, but with a, a woman. And that's exactly what happens. A woman becomes the hero of the story, not Barak, but the writer of hebrews knows this that's why he chose this name he's trying to make a point here for us but barack um he's not a million dollar caliber guy million dollar caliber guys don't go with conditions they just go i got this let's do this i'm the man follow me it's not who Barack is. He's a one cent kind of guy, just like Gideon. How about Samson is the next name, right? We know Samson. We think Samson breaks the pattern here because Samson is million dollar strong. Brother is just ha- he has the ability to do significant things with his beyond our level of strength. Strength, but that would be to misunderstand Samson and everything that is going on in the book of Judges. So, yes, Samson did have supernatural strength, but not in and of himself. Right? Check this out in Judges chapter 16, verse 20, we very clearly Samson is not the one who is the generator and the holder of this strength. Right, here's a scene. The Philistines are coming upon Samson. He's made some terrible decisions with his lady friends. Here, you guys know the story, some of you. And she said, um, Delilah says, Hey, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Oh no, the enemy's getting you. And then Samson awoke from his sleep and said, Well, here's what I will do. I will go out as at other times and I will shake myself free. Because I, Samson, a million dollars strong. That's who I am. But, but But what he did not know is that the Lord had left him on his own. Samson and I might have a really long arm wrestling match because he's just a normal guy. There's nothing special about him. But when the power of the Lord came upon him, that's when Samson's strength got multiplied. When the Lord left him, Samson had nothing beyond what you and I have, and the Philistines overcome him. Next name in the list, Jephthah. Don't want to go deep into Jephthah other than to say Jephthah was an exile, he was a brash, and um, he was the kind of guy that made poor decisions that got other people into trouble. Particularly his daughter who died because of his idiocy. Um, Jephthah is not a million dollar caliber individual. Clearly, by the account of his life that we get in Judges, he's really insignificant as a person. But here he is. Chapter 11. Great exploits that we see, right? And And then here's the name that we know and we're all familiar with. The name David. Verse 32, and exploits of David. And we think clearly, we know David. We've read the story. David is more than us. We might be one insignificant little cent, but David, the great anointed and iconic king, he is a million dollar caliber guy. He's the warrior king. David's got stuff we don't have. Again, if that's what we think, We are missing everything that Hebrews 11 is telling us, and we've missed the story of David in 1 Samuel 17. It's amazing how tragically misunderstood we are in just reading the things that God clearly puts in front of us, and oftentimes we run away with the wrong message. Just want to point this out again, 1 Samuel 17 in verse 12, right? You want to know who David is? Is David a million-dollar caliber guy? Is that is that who he is? Well, let's let's go to the place where we meet David early on in the story. Let's get a sense for who this guy is, who has had these incredible million-dollar exploits. That's true, but who is he? Verse 17 of 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 17. Sorry, verse 12. Here we go. Now, David, here's who he is. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse. So, David is the son of Jesse. Great. More information. His dad, Jesse, had eight sons. In those days, the, uh, in those days of Saul the king, the man was already old and advanced in years. So, David's dad is really old. Verse 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. And the names of these three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. So David, is he's got three older brothers. They've been selected to go to battle. David hasn't. Okay? If you're a good leader, Saul, you, you choose the best warriors? Well, Saul chose the best of David's family. Jesse's sons, he's got the three best. The other five are not on the battle lines. Verse 14. Now let's talk about David. David was the youngest Got eight boys in the family, David is youngest, oldest three at the front lines, David, not there, youngest. David's the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David, the youngest in the family, the most insignificant of the eight brothers, right? A good dad chooses good jobs for their kids. David's not going to battle. He's tending the sheep. It's the job nobody wants. In addition to that, we talked about this several weeks ago, David is the DoorDash boy. He's the guy who's taking food to the front lines to his brothers and then heading back to tend the sheep. And he's taking food to the front lines for his brothers and he's going back to tend the sheep. David gets the jobs nobody wants to do because everybody knows that David is a one cent little boy and one cent little boys don't do significant exploits. Clarify that. One cent little boys operating under their own strength don't do anything. But one cent little boys who have positioned themselves by faith in the multiplying power of their Heavenly Father, wow, they can do some stuff. Verse 33. Saul says to David, David, you're not able to go out and fight this Philistine, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. David says, Saul, I get it, I'm a one-cent kid. <laughs> you think I got a punk attitude, you think that I'm full of myself. I'm not. Truth be told, as I have experiences here where I've taken down lions and bears, not because I'm strong enough to do so, but because I've learned what it means to connect myself to my Heavenly Father, and I know what it feels like to feel His power multiplying through me. In this, uh, I, I believe the Lord wants me to do it again. And here, just for the sake of understanding the story and the point let me introduce you to the one that David wants to go fight one cent little insignificant little David here's the one he wants to go fight verse 4 of chapter 17 and there came out from the camp of the philistines a here here's who he is here's David's enemy a champion hold on now when you hear the word champion yeah that fits David wants to go take on a a real champion. David wants to go fight a champion. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And then it describes his armor. He's a big, bad, rough and tumble warrior. Saul is the kind of guy, if we were talking about an athlete, he's got no holes in his game. He is the total package. He's got it all. There's no chinks in his armor. And just in case we missed this from verse 4, well, the writer of Samuel is going to make us aware again in verse 23. Goliath comes out, right? We're going to describe Goliath as he, Goliath talked, behold, sorry, as David was talking with Saul, behold, the Here's what's going on. The champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. Oh no, Goliath, million dollar guy. The champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before and he terrified everyone who heard him. Except David. I asked you before, what would you take? The million dollars right now or the one penny? under the multiplication power of 31 days. I'm just going to put it out there. Let's put it to Vegas odds. We got Goliath versus David. who are you going to bet on? Well, we, we should, thinking rationally, we should choose Goliath. Unless... One-cent David is going to operate in the multiplication power of God that God invites him into. Then, you better change your bet before the match goes down because we know who the winner is going to be. Here's the point. We see it all through Judges. We see it in Samuel. It's what the Hebrews 11 writer is trying to cram into our small brains. And when I say small brains, I'm speaking of me. And maybe you too. Faith is not million-dollar caliber people doing million-dollar caliber things. It's not what the whole point is. Hebrews chapter 11 is cramming into our hearts the idea that God takes insignificant people and when those insignificant people connect to him and his kindness and his love and his presence, then, and by faith, then when we operate against what appears to be million dollar level obstacles, like Goliath, what God loves to do is he works his multiplication power in us, among us, and then through us, and then we accomplish million dollar caliber things. That. Is the whole point. If you were to come to my house right now, um, you would see that I have redone my entryway to our house. And if you haven't seen it yet, just know that it looks good. Um, we had a lot of uh, big rocks on our property. And when I say big rocks, I mean like thousand-pound rocks. And um, here's the here's the question. Look at me. Just take me in for a second. Um, Here's me regarding strength. How in the world is Brian able to move 1,000-pound rocks? Because I did. Absolutely did. Uh, You would be wrong to assume that in and of my own one-cent insignificant strength that I was able to corral and move and change the trajectory and positioning of 1,000-pound-plus rocks. I was not able, and I am not able to do that. Your assessment of my strength is accurate. But yet, I, I did, I'll show you the work of my hands. I did move thousand pound plus rocks. How did I do it? I will tell you how, and I will show you so that you can do it too. I leaned in to the multiplying power of leverage. You know what this is? This is a uh, 25-pound barbell for weightlifting, and uh, this used to be straight, but after a decade of me moving rocks, I'm not kidding here, um, I I bent the thing, right? But here, I just did it two weeks ago. um, Elder Jay Tyree stopped over, unfortunately, at the wrong day as I was moving rocks, and he he had to join me, and he knows, okay? But um, but Jay and I tried to move some of these thousand-pound rocks with our hands, couldn't budge them, but then like we would get this bar and you stick it under like a portion, like a little corner of the rock. And then you would like then fix the, the end point into the earth. And then what you have done is you created a lever. And what a lever does is it takes insignificant one cent strength and it applies, it applies a multiplying force to it. So that when I lift, I'm actually lifting multiplied my force. And then when I do that, I am able to move 1,000 pound plus rocks and shimmy them and shape them and corral them into the place that I want them to be. I cannot do it on my own. You're right. I'm a one cent strong guy. But you give me leverage that multiplies my strength and I will move 1,000 pound rocks. I prefer not to move yours. I've done enough of my own. But you, you can multiply your strength Two, right? This is what Archimedes said. He said, give me a lever long enough and a fixed point on which to stand. And I will move the earth. Archimedes is not saying, I am strong enough to move the earth. I am significant in my strength. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the multiplied power of force that a lever provides is amazing and he wants the world to see it because he's enamored by it. It's the same thing that the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation attest to. Hebrews 11 writer is focusing us in on. I don't care that you have a low assessment of yourself. You may have an accurate assessment of yourself. You are a one cent individual, but... Great, because what the story of the scriptures is, is that God longs to come alongside of us and take our insignificance and be the lever that multiplies us so that we can do absolutely amazing things. He loves to do it. It is his sheer joy to take us and do things... It's the invitation that he gives. Real quick, the story of Gideon. It's just, it's so obvious what God is saying, but we so obviously miss it. Judges chapter 7. Gideon, hiding in fear. I am the weakest in a family of the weakest family. Pick somebody else. That's who Gideon is. He's a nobody. Finally, Gideon starts stepping along with the Lord in this process of like delivering Israel. All right, he says, finally, let's do it. I'm with you. And then Gideon finds himself surrounded by an army of 32,000 men. For me, 32,000 soldiers sounds like a, it sounds like a significant something, okay? It's probably not sufficient to the task of the enemy they were fighting, but 32,000 is something, But as the story in Judges 7 moves on, what the Lord does, and this is God is just so funny and good at the same time. He's got a sense of humor. But what he does, God takes that 32,000 army that's being led by weak, scared, hiding, sniffling Gideon. And the Lord takes that 32,000 and progressively like sends 22,000 home. Then he sends more home and he sends more soldiers home. And God just like trims that army from 32,000 down to 300. Well, God, we had something to work with. Now, what what are you doing? Well, God's just declaring, well, you know what I love to do? I just love to come alongside you who perceive yourself to be nothing and I love to wrap my arms around you and I love to cause your heart to have courage not in yourself but to have courage and trust in me and I love to join you side by side and I love to take your strength and multiply it many, many, many oh times to accomplish things that you don't think we can do but I love to do with you. Thank you, Jesus. So what are you facing this morning? When I say you, I mean what are you facing this morning? What do you not feel up to the challenge to overcome? Is it a relational challenge that just seems unsolvable? Is it a personal struggle that you just can't seem to get under control? Are you having trouble in your ruling and subduing of creation, meaning your vocational place in the world? Like what is it that you perceive to be that Goliath, that champion? There's no chinks in the armor. I can't I can't overcome that I can't defeat that I'm always going to be tyrannized by that It ain't going to happen Because of who I am If you feel that You are in good company You are in Hebrews 11 company friends If that's how you feel Because only when you start feeling that Can you say "All right, Lord I get it I I see it now And I trust you It's not me that moves the mountains. It's not me that feeds the thousands. It's not me that takes down the champion. It's not me and my 32,000-man army that defeats the enemy. It is is me, insignificant me, plus my rock-solid trust in you, where you... You just do stuff that I don't quite understand. I mean, I kind of understand faith, but I don't. I kind of understand leverage, but I don't. But I just know that it's you and me together, and I just want to say I'm all into that. And so now, I don't want to be like everybody else who shrinks back from the things that I don't think I can overcome. I don't want to fall away and hide from the things that I think are beyond me, but I just want to engage with you, and I want to trust you and believe that you will come alongside and that you will be the multiplier of my insignificance and you will do amazing things. That is the invitation. And I don't know why I'm getting choked up right now because I don't get choked up on my own very often. And I just wonder if it's because there's some of you that need to start leaning into this. And you've got a father that loves you. And he's tired and sad because this is all you are. And he just wants you to say, no, come, trust me. Trust me. Take me at my word. I am with you. Greater is me who is in you than any obstacle that is in the world. And just hear my voice. Take me in my word and let's see what we can do with this thing. And then Hebrews 11 just isn't a chapter in the Bible, but it is a way of life of a community of people. And friends, that's that's when the stories get fun. Out. that's when the worship service really breaks out and i'm not saying we all got to be hands in the air people that's not it but, we, but hearts engaged god you are good not because i've just learned about you but because i have participated in life with you that is the invitation of hebrews chapter 11 band come on back up before i lose it again i'm going to pray for us but I'm amongst friends. You guys are okay, right? You guys are okay with that. Because we're grown people. We are mature adults. And the Lord leads us in. Not just to full brains. But full hearts. So. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Thank you that you are the great multiplying power. And that you long and love to come alongside us, one cent seeming nobodies. And Father, I pray that you would tutor us and teach us what it means to feel the full weight of our inability to solve the significant issues, obstacles, enemies, and difficulties around us but to learn to be okay with that because you're not asking us to be million-dollar competent people. You're asking us to just trust you and invite you and then follow you as you multiply our strength by your presence with us and among us. Would you give us the honor of walking with you in this way? Would you, even as we sing, maybe even point out an obstacle to each of us in our hearts and in our mind's eye that we think is over, it's not overcomable? We're always going to be under the tyranny of this thing. But Father, I pray that you would bring one to mind that you just want to crush that you want to deliver us from, one thing that you want to solve and cause us to be victors with you with, and then just give us a glimpse of you being side by side with us so that we know we can step into this thing, not just with our own energy and ideas and strength, but that we can learn how to submit and walk with you and join you as you multiply our strength and even help us. Father, would you make us a church filled with people that learn how to live this way. It's to your great glory and to our joy. That will be the end. So Father, we just ask humbly and with great need, we ask you to lead us into this. In Jesus' name.